2: This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope
0: for your life. Coming up this hour, what can we all learn from Christian doctors as they are in the midst of the transgender debates? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, One of the uh, emerging conversations that's been growing and it continues to grow within our culture, within the church, uh, is the complexities and um, the frequency of our conversations around transgenderism and the various debates going on there. And Aubrey, what I would say as we kind of dive into this topic is uh, it's a conversation that is com- uh, quickly evolving. Like it's almost hard to stay uh,
3: like up, up, with, to, up to yeah, date. Yeah, I agree. Right, right.
0: To even know what's going on. And mm-hmm. we wanted to start there with just what I found to be uh, a really helpful listen. So this is a much longer uh, podcast, but we're just going to play like a, a you know a little bit of it. This is Mark Yarhouse. He is a psychology professor at Wheaton College and the director of the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. So this is kind of where his research is. His books include Understanding Gender Dysphoria and most recently Emerging Gender Identities. Again, he's a psychology professor at Wheaton College. So let's just listen to a brief snippet of this podcast that he did.
2: I think the conversation around gender has become more pronounced, more centered into the cultural discussions. You're seeing an increase in the number of people who identify as transgender or what I refer to as emerging gender identities. And so there's much more of a splintering of gender categories into different experiences, different language for describing people's experiences. I think that has been a shift in the last five years or six years. I think things have become more polarized as well, culturally. You saw that, I think, with the reaction to some of the legislation like the bathroom bill, but you see that now with the law passed in Alabama and something like 20 other states might be considering similar legislation. Now, contrast that with the 20 or more states that have have gender identity change effort laws in place for minors to keep that from happening. I think you're just seeing an increase on both sides of a very divisive topic.
0: So again, Aubrey, I find that helpful just to kind of get our arms around the fact that that this conversation is almost changing, not only year to year, but month to month and, and in many ways, week to week.
3: Right pop artist demi lovato came Mm. out and said that you know she's no longer using the pronoun she but wants is non-binary wants to refer to herself as they but here's what i don't know this is why the conversation changes so quickly is that – is the gender pronoun conversation a different conversation than <laughs> transgenderism and and gender dysphoria? You know what I mean? It's it's just – it's complicated. There are yes. layers. And uh, all that to say, I, I feel like we need to go to the experts like a Mark Yarhouse to that's help right. us know how to respond.
0: That's right. That's right. And so uh, our friend Kate Shelnut, she's been on the show a few times. Uh, anyone who's been on the show a few times, we refer to her as our
3: friend. She is our friend. She's fabulous.
0: Kate Shelnut wrote at Christianity Today – Is it discrimination or, quote, do no harm? Christian doctors gear up, excuse me, for transgender debates. It says, as health and human services challenges continue to play out in court, the Christian Medical and Dental Associations provides a more robust position statement on treating patients with gender dysphoria. So here's the here's the question, right? You're a doctor. And this debate, you know, a lot of us are having this debate in theory, right? Um, oh, right, the, right. The bathroom debates or the uh, high school sports debate or what does this just mean for kids? Whatever. And it, that it's an important debate. It's an important conversation. Uh, but for the doctors right now, for Christian doctors, the, the real question is, what do we do? How do we treat? What do we do? And, and so we yeah. don't really read much here, but let me just read just a little bit from this article because I think it's helpful. It says, as cultural conflicts around transgender identity grow more intense, Christian doctors see a need to be more sensitive to the plights and preferences of people experiencing gender dysphoria while also holding firm to personal and professional convictions around biological sex. That's what the Christian Medical and Dental Association say in an updated statement on transgender identification That leader's hope will inform its 20,000 members as well as the general public. That balance might be difficult to maintain, though, if federal health officials take the position that declining certain treatments for transgender patients can be considered a form of discrimination Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. based on sex. And then Kate's article here is going to describe what the Health and Human Services announced about discrimination and anti-discrimination last week and what the Christian Doctors Association uh, is kind of doing. But what do you think of this statement they make here, Aubrey? And what do we learn from it about uh we want to be sensitive to the plight of those who are struggling with gender dysphoria, with right. questions, right. while at the same time sticking to our Christian convictions and right. biblical convictions. And we want to hold those in tension, yeah. not just in theory, but actually in practice.
3: I feel like, I mean, you just ultimately asked the question that we're all seeking to answer. How do you hold both intention? Because our our biblical values and our biblical understanding of gender identity is important. And I think if we're not careful, we could easily just allow it uh, not to matter. Mm -hmm. And... And yet, <laughs> what we also know is that Jesus modeled loving everyone, especially people who seemed unlovable or unlovely. Mm. And, you know, I you take, I guess the bridge would be like the tax collector in the ancient Near East now to the transgender community or the gender dysphoric community. And, <sighs> I think I don't know, Brian. I mean, I think that's, that's wh- where I'm going to be honest with you. I want to love really well. And I want to understand. I think that's part of it is the things I don't understand. Instead of going, that I don't understand that. Therefore, <laughs> instead of getting defensive, I want to have a heart that says, this has not been my experience at all. Can you help me understand what you're struggling with? Can you help me understand why this feels important to you? And try to build some of those relational bridges like we talk about here on The Common Good a lot. That allow for, I think, us to love, but also to stand firm in who we are in Christ and what we believe theologically and what we believe ethically about gender. Um, But I I think this is going to get increasingly more challenging for Christians to Mm -hmm. learn how to navigate in a godly way. What yeah, do you, that, th- what do well, you think? Well, because then
0: you also add on top of it, I do think the laws are about to change. Well, that's for it, right. Churches, right, right. for schools, for businesses. It feels like the medical community, and this is why this article is helpful, the medical community is at the front end of this, right? They're yeah, they're kind of, the they're kind of, of the leading spear. the
3: way for us in how we should respond, right? Right,
0: right. And I, I think it's interesting. It says the position statement that, that the Medical Association wrote says that Christians in healthcare should not, quote, should not initiate hormonal and surgical intervention intended as sex reassignment and takes a stand against doing so th- through treatments such as alterations to sexual anatomy, uterine transplants, or hormones for children mm. or adolescents, so they're laying some stakes in the ground here yeah
3: that's good that are
0: important, but at the same time going we don't need to fight every battle here yeah. when it comes to pronouns or this and that, and I think you bring up an interesting point here for for the church aubrey is like. Ultimately, what is it going to look like to stand our biblical convictions, to stand upon them without being um, unloving and without being people? uh, You know, this isn't like we
3: haven't always done this well as the church. Let's be honest. (laughs)
0: Like this isn't the one where we go. Well, this is the one where we can, you know, table our Christian ethic of love your neighbor as yourself. Right. But at the same time, when you stand upon your conviction, sometimes that is going to come across as unloving and there's nothing you can really do about that. So I think the church is going to live in this tension here increasingly. Uh, And I I, the, the thing that I most appreciate about what you said is. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's right. you weren't saying I don't know what I think. I don't know what, you know, what I believe the Bible. You're saying I don't know how to live in that tension right, right. now. Right. But I think the church has to be willing to say we're going to try to live inside that tension rather than just say everything's good or rather than saying I'm going to fight tooth and yeah. nail here, no matter yeah. what the uh, what the carnage is on the side. Yeah. So I doubt this is the last time we have this conversation. It's a hard one, yeah, uh, but we as pastors and just as Christians are going to need to wrestle with this. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, he is the author of a new book called Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God Is Real. Excited to have that conversation with Dr. Brown next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined on the phone by the founder and president of Fire School of Ministry in Concord, North Carolina, also the host of the nationally syndicated daily talk show, The Line of Fire, the author of many books. But we we're excited to talk to him about his new book, Has God Failed You?, Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God Is Real. He is Dr. Michael Brown. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my joy to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into this book, which just looks fantastic, uh, can you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better?
4: Yeah, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, born in 1955, came to faith in 1971 as a heroin shooting LSD using 16-year-old hippie rock drummer Wow! and wonderfully transformed, yeah, the Lord's amazing grace. Mm. Uh, Since then, I've traveled all around the world preaching the gospel, uh, raised up schools of ministry that have sent out laborers all around the world. Uh, I do a daily radio show, as you mentioned, live call-in show where we tackle all the controversies, Mm. and I'm introduced every day as your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution Mm. and uh, have a threefold focus on our ministry. One R is revival, wanting mm-hmm. to see the church revived and, and experience another great awakening. The next is a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution where Jesus changes us and we help change the world around us. And then the last is redemption in Israel, mm-hmm. seeing the Jewish people saved. Our, our heart beats for that mm-hmm. day and night. So that, that's what we give ourselves to. I normally write a new op-ed piece on what's happening in the world around us every day and then do live radio. And, you know, with live call-in shows... It really sensitizes you because you hear from people with every kind of struggle, every kind of situation, every kind of objection, and it makes you really stretch Mm. and lean on the Lord to give them solid answers.
3: Mm, That sounds so good. We'll have to talk to you about Israel here in just a little bit. The title of your book, Dr. Brown, is Has God Failed You? What a perfect title for such a time as this. I'm wondering, what are the most common reasons when people think God has failed me? What are some of those reasons?
4: Yeah, the the biggest reasons that people feel as if God failed them would be experiential, that they prayed, you know, they had a sick child and they were sure God was going to heal their child and they claimed all the promises and the child died. Mm. Or they went through a hell of a situation and felt that God just wasn't with them Mm -hmm. and they concluded either this thing is not real or it's not working for me. Or maybe they got burned and hurt in the church and they thought if this is what this Jesus thing is all about, I don't want it. So mm. a lot of experiential things, will, that, that, that's the most common, obviously. But then often it's intellectual. They get hit with objections to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Why is the God of the Bible, you know, the God of the Old Testament killing people? And why does he hate gays? And, and you know, I can't reconcile these things. And what about evolution? And, you know, aren't we outdated and outmoded with what we believe? And then the, the more philosophical ones, just the problem of evil. So much suffering, yeah. so much pain in the world. How can there be a good God and so much hurting and pain in the world? So experiential objections, intellectual objections, philosophical objections, and sometimes one leads to another. You know, mm. bad experience gets you to start questioning things. Next thing, the experiential becomes intellectual, and then people walk out the door. And something that, that we've got to be aware of is it's not just those walking out the door. It's not just young people uh, disbelieving, but there are many people in church and they're going through the motions, and they've done it for years, some even pastoring churches, but on the inside they're dying because they're not sure if what they believe is real, Mm -hmm. and they don't feel that they can be honest and open about their doubts and their questions.
3: Yeah, that's good. good.
0: Dr. Brown, as you said, you grew up in a Jewish household and then became a follower of Jesus. I would just love to know. I know that it's probably hours upon hours of that story but really thumbnail sketch how did you go from being a, a a Jew in a Jewish household to becoming a follower of Jesus and what was that experience like what were some of the challenges that came as you made that conversion
4: yeah and and, and that does tie in with the subject of the book because of the objections that I got hit with but I did not grow up in a religious Jewish home in okay. other words I, I wasn't studying the Hebrew language and the and and Torah and tradition day and night you know starting as a little boy we were more nominal. So I was born mitzvah at the age of 13. We would go to synagogue on the high holy days, but I wasn't a religious Jew. So when the whole counterculture thing happened in the 60s, I had seen my first rock concert, seen Jimi Hendrix in concert when I was 13. Mm. I was playing drums. I, I, I just got caught up in that whole culture. When drugs were offered to me at the age of 14, I thought, well, yeah, I mean, why not try it? And the rock stars do it. And One thing led to another. I have my body somehow wired that I have a high resistance to drugs. Mm. So it took more drugs, harder drugs for me to get high. And then that became my identity. I was called drug bear and Iron Man because I could take such massive quantities of drugs. Wow. And then my two best friends, like these two girls, they were Gentiles. They liked these two girls who were going to a little gospel preaching church because their dad had been praying for them and, and. Their Their uncle was the pastor of the church, so little by little they got drawn in. My friends got drawn in. I literally went in august of seventy one to pull them out oh. and, and to show them this whole thing was was ridiculous wow. and it ended up that the people in the church started praying for me i didn 't know it, but literally, I went from one day boasting about my sin and thinking I was the coolest guy on the planet, stole money from my own father and he mm. didn 't know it, ripped off my friends, and they didn 't know it man, am I clever to being riddled with guilt. Mm. And I had no idea why. And mm. I didn't know it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So God made me uncomfortable in my sin, revealed his love to me through Jesus. And when I really understood his love, and when I saw the wicked way I was living, I, I, I surrendered to him. I was instantly set free from, from the needle and from other drugs. And when I, when I told my dad what happened, at first laughed like, hallelujah, you're saved, right? Mm-hmm. But, but then when he saw the change in my life, he said, okay, Michael, I'm glad you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. <laughs> right. So, so he brought me to meet the local rabbi. Wow. And the local rabbi befriended me. He was a brilliant young man, maybe about 11 years older than me, fresh out of Jewish Theological Seminary. But he challenged me. He challenged everything I believed. Mm-hmm. He challenged me on, on anti-Semitism and church history. He challenged me on you know, what seemed to be misinterpretation of verses in the New Testament and, and so on and so forth. And then he brought me to meet other rabbis. And then, then he challenged me that I didn't know Hebrew. Wow. So when I started college, I started studying Hebrew, but I went to a secular school. So every professor I had did not believe what I believed. And some were downright hostile. hostile mm-hmm. All the way through my PhD at NYU, I never went to a, a Bible school or seminary, which meant for years I was constantly challenged on everything I believed. Wow. I was constantly challenged on whether the Bible is really God's word. I was constantly challenged on whether I was betraying my Jewish people mm-hmm. as a follower of Jesus. And and what that drove me to was I must pursue the truth and pursue God at any cost or consequence. Mm-hmm. If what I believe is wrong, then it won't withstand the test. If it's true. It will withstand the test. And that's why I can speak with confidence Mm -hmm. because, no, I haven't been through some of the losses that some of the readers have. And I really relied on the empathy of the Lord in my heart and, and sensitivity to to their situations. If I saw the faces of those in pain as I was writing. But I have been challenged year after year intellectually. I have felt that spiritual pain when you think, oh, no, what if I'm wrong? What if this isn't true? So I can speak with confidence. We don't have to run from objections. We don't have to hide from them. We can give people permission to ask their questions because they're a solid answers, eternal answers Mm. in the Word and from God. Amen.
0: Thank you for sharing your story there. Again, that's Dr. Michael Brown. He's the author of a new book, Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God Is Real. And Dr. Brown, thanks so much for staying with us. I'm wondering, there's somebody out there listening right now, and they've got a friend or even a close family member, right? One of their kids or a spouse or somebody that they love. Uh, who they sense is giving up on believing in God, right? Like they're kind of deconstructing or they're saying, I don't believe this anymore. What what would you say to that person? How do you support their loved one? What would you suggest that they do if that's kind of the situation they find themselves in right now?
4: Yeah, and and obviously there were two target audiences for the book, one for the person hurting, the other for... The person whose loved one is hurting. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm thinking about both as I'm writing and saying, "Hey, you may know someone that could use this book." So, what what do I tell that person themselves? First thing, give those to prayer for them. If if, if you got a, a kid, maybe a 22 year old, and they say, I don't, "I don't believe anymore," or someone else that's drifted away, rely on the power of prayer. Mm-hmm. No, God is not going to turn someone into a robot and force them to do certain things, but Prayer makes a difference. I know in my own life, I've seen it. I tell the story in the book of my best friend before I was saved, the the one I mentioned, one of the two that I mentioned. We played in a band together, got high together, uh, got saved together, he before me. I was the best man in his wedding. Mm. He was the best man in my wedding. And then after several years in the Lord, doubts crept in, struggles crept in. He didn't really open up about it. Little by little, the world pulled him away. He was away from the Lord for over 40 years. That's wow. a long time. Yes. Wow. So now we're both in our mid-60s when we connect again a couple years ago. God basically pulls the rug out from under everything in his life. In his desperation, he begins to cry out. He tells me on the phone, Mike, I'm beginning to doubt my doubts. Mm. Now he is burning for the Lord. Wow. He is excited. He says, i got to tell everybody about Jesus. Wow. I have to evangelize. So this is over 40 years That's away amazing. from the Lord. So wow. prayer Makes a massive difference. The second thing is this ask the person to be open about their struggles and do your best to understand the nature of their struggle. Hmm. It, in other words, it may seem, oh, their answers are so easy to this, but if it was so easy to them, if it was so simple to them, they wouldn't be struggling. So what you want to do is try to empathize with their struggle as opposed to you feel threatened by, because sometimes if our own faith is insecure and someone comes with a a deep question, we react like, no, you're just wrong. There's something wrong. I'm telling you, there's something wrong in your own heart. Why do we react like that? Because we're, we're insecure and, and we can't even handle the question. We need to be secure enough in God that even if we don't have the answers to say, you know, that that's a really powerful objection or, or that's a, Man, I, I could understand from your viewpoint why you feel like this. Or are, are, are you willing to think about it more? Or mm. maybe we could maybe we could watch something together. Or are you willing to read something? Mm. Or you know, just just tell me how you're feeling. And, and do you mind if I pray for you? Mm-hmm. Just okay. whatever it is, keep the door open. And and rather than look at that person and judge them, you know, when Job went through his hellish sufferings, the friends misjudged him. Right, and they figured well. Obviously, only a terrible sinner goes through something like this, so you you must be a really bad guy. And then Job, knowing that he wasn't a terrible sinner, misjudged God and thought, you must be a terrible God. Mm. And in point of fact, neither proposition was true. Mm -hmm. There was something else going on behind the scenes, and and it took to the end of the book where God reveals himself to Job, and even though he doesn't get answers to the questions, he has that encounter with God. And that's why I say ultimately Prayer makes a difference because if you really encounter God, if, if you see him, so to say, in his glory and power and love and beauty, the questions disappear. It, it's like mm-hmm. you put your arms around someone that's hurting and you hug them and they cry on your shoulder. You haven't answered their question, but you've comforted them. So we we rely on God to do it, but keep the door open, understand the issues, and That's go great. on the journey with the person to, pry to try to bring them to wholeness. That's
3: great. So good. Dr. Brown, you know, maybe there's a listener in their car right now or in their kitchen right now, and they're feeling like, man, I, I have been praying, and I don't know if God hears my prayer. I, I am doubting the presence of God right now. I have not experienced that encounter that you're talking about. Do you have just a word of encouragement for them?
4: Seek him until. Mm. Hebrews 11.6, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 13, if we search for him with all of our heart, we'll find him. Second Chronicles 69. he's looking through the whole earth to stand in strong support of those whose hearts are wholly his. Here's the long and short of it. When we read Proverbs, it says if you really seek wisdom, if you look for it more than for silver and gold, you'll find it. The treasures in God don't just fall on our heads like ripe apples from a tree. Often it's in our time of desperation. Often it's in our time when we feel like we've come to the end of ourselves. I'd encourage this person, maybe you're listening right now, to go back and think, did God ever answer one of your prayers? Mm. Was there a time when you knew that you knew that he was real? Mm. Journal that. Remember it. Rehearse it. Let, let that be like a peg in the wall that you hold on to as, as, as you're trying to pull your way up. Remind yourself of his faithfulness in the past when he did answer when he did okay. intervene and then determined I'm going to go after him I'm going to seek him the last chapter of the book tells a very moving story something close to to my wife Nancy and me an agonizing story of doubt of questioning that went on over years until this person got to the point and said I'm going to seek God or I'm going to die trying mm-hmm. I, if this is real if he's real then he's got to honor these promises and look, you may, you may be busy homeschooling mom. You, you may be out working three jobs. You may not have a lot of free time. You may not have six hours a day to pray, but all through the day, there can be a cry from your heart. God, I've got to know you. God, you've got to show yourself. Lord, if this is real, make yourself known. And we're not talking about goosebumps or feelings or some vision, but God knows how to communicate with us mm-hmm. in such a way that we
0: can know that we know that he's real. That's great. And Dr. Brown, as we close this up, this question probably requires a little bit more time than we have, but I want to make sure to ask it of you uh, because there's always that excuse out there that people make nowadays that just says the Bible's outdated, right? The Bible doesn't speak to our society. It doesn't speak to our day. It's just an old fashioned book. How do you answer that question when people bring that up about the Bible?
4: I begin to show them some of the wisdom of the word. I remember doing that as our daughters were teenagers and getting exposed to more things in the world. I show them the the amazing teaching of Jesus and think, who could imagine this? It speaks to all people, all generations around the world. I tell them, hey, you're struggling with skepticism. Read through Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. You're going through pain and questions and where is God? Let's read through the Psalms together. Uh, you're looking for for practical, a day to uh, day, day to day counsel, day to day wisdom. Hey, look in the Book of Proverbs and then compare the Bible to the ancient world. Compare the Bible to the literature of the ancient world. people say it 's outdated and primitive, and it stands out like a jewel in the midst of a bunch of rocks mm. full of practicality wisdom. We have two whole chapters dealing with objections to the Bible as god 's word that I think will really edify, bless and help people wonderful
0: so again we can 't encourage you enough to go get this new book called "Has God Failed You?" finding faith when you're not even sure that God is real. You can also learn more about Dr. Michael Brown at askdrbrown.org. That's askdrbrown.org. And follow him on Twitter at Dr. Michael L. Brown, at Dr. Michael L. Brown. Dr. Brown, this was a great pleasure for us. Thanks so much for joining yeah, thank us today. You for
3: being with us.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. God bless you. God bless you as well. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Something we've been doing now for a long time on the show is just to leave us thinking as we go about our days. Right. Uh and one of the places we've been finding that is at the Good News Network. That's goodnewsnetwork.org. You can just find inspiring stories also or sort so, all sorts of just things there. like feel there.
3: But, good stories. They exactly. they're so encouraging. Yes.
0: Exactly. But you found something there called the Motivation Madness podcast yeah. which I've never seen and on it was Simon Sinek and we're going to look at uh, we're going to listen to some of what he has to say about rules for finding your spark, quote unquote and changing your future. But why did this uh, podcast jump out to you so much?
3: Well, on the Good News Network, I was actually just looking for some inspiring articles that we could talk about, but I saw they have a link that says Good News Talk. And they put motivational or inspiring speeches. And I started to listen to this one. And Simon Sinek, I don't know if you've heard him speak. He's been at the Leadership Summit at Willow Creek and other... He's just very engaging as a speaker. And he talks about... uh, This is so fascinating. He tells the story at the beginning of how... He and a buddy were in line for bagels after a really big race in New York City. Okay, and he was desperate to get the bagel. And so he was willing to like cut his way in line to get the bagel. But the friend that he was with could only see the long line um, keeping them from getting the bagels. And so he said, I realized in that moment that there are two ways to see the world. Some people see what they want and they go for it. And others can only see what's getting in the way of what they want. And they never go for the things they want. And so from there, he created these five rules of how to find your spark in life and how to change your future. And um, the first one is like I just said, go after the things you want, but then he makes this really important kind of caveat. He says, but don't get in the way of other people getting what they want. Hmm. And if one person succeed, like we help other people succeed, we all succeed. And so I thought that was really interesting. Um, The second thing that he talks about is taking accountability seriously, which I think is a really good word for this day and age that, um, you know, he says, hey, if you're like, take credit for the things you've done, the accomplishments, but like, if you make a mistake own that mistake because that's part of the problem now is people aren't owning their mistakes. And then this one is the audio that I wanted us to listen to. Um, The third point for finding your spark, changing your future is taking care of each other. So let's listen to this couple minutes.
5: Lesson three, take care of each other. The United States Navy SEALs are perhaps the most elite warriors in the world. And one of the SEALs was asked, Who makes it through the selection process? Who is able to become a seal? And his answer was, I can't tell you the kind of person that becomes a seal. I can't tell you the kind of person that makes it through buds. But I can tell you the kind of people who don't become seals. He says the guys that show up with huge, bulging muscles covered in tattoos who want to prove to the world how tough they are. None of them make it through. He said the preening leaders who like to delegate all their responsibility and never do anything themselves, none of them make it through. He said the star college athletes who've never really been tested to the core of their being, none of them make it through. He says some of the guys that make it through are skinny and scrawny. He said some of the guys that make it through, you will see them shivering out of fear he says however all the guys that make it through when they find themselves physically spent emotionally spent when they have nothing left to give physically or emotionally somehow some way they are able to find the energy to dig down deep inside themselves to find the energy to help the guy next to them
3: okay so there he gives the example of like these brave warriors the navy <laughs> seals and talked about how and i love this advice for a living it doesn't matter how strong you are doesn't matter how fast you are doesn't matter how good looking you are it's about caring for other people yep. and at the end of the day he talks about how the navy seals that survive are the ones that put the other person first and take care of them and yeah. I, that's a, such a great example. It of sounds biblical, right? Oh, like, it sounds right. Biblical. S-
0: spur one another on, you mm-hmm. know, have each other's back, be there with each other. Don't don't stop being together. Like all of this stuff, the Bible's about community, community, community and our need for each other. Uh, and then, you know, you've got a guy here going, hey, here's how to find your spark, your future. Look at the Navy SEALs. They live for one another. Yes. And you're like, see, the Bible playing itself out again. I, th- I think that is that is powerful. That's a powerful one.
3: Yeah, isn't that powerful? Okay, let me read you the other two, and then I want to know what stands out to you. So I'm ready. Um, Number four, is he said, this is interesting. He said, most people will say, learn to listen, but I actually say practice being the last one to speak. So if you're in a meeting or a small group, you hold your opinions until everyone else has spoken. You truly listen to them. You consider others' opinions, and then after you've taken... Taking all in after you've asked questions to make sure you understand, then you respond with your opinion. And he says, You don't, this is kind of interesting. Don't give away, like, don't nod if you agree. Don't shake your head if you disagree. Just listen, ask clarifying questions. And then when all is said and done, then you speak. And he said there's something about good, good leaders, and he, he based this on a practice that Nelson Mandela did. Good, good leaders wait until the very end to take their turn. And that was really interesting. And then the last one, he said, this is an interesting perspective, too. As you gain position and seniority as a leader or whatever it is you're doing, as you get better at it, people will begin to treat you better. Um, but what he talks about is this, the way they'll bring you coffee or they'll bring you food or, or gifts or whatever. He said, what you have to remember is those things, that cup of coffee, that gift, that is not about you. That's about the position that you hold. And so you have to remember that you're there sort of holding that position positionally because God has mm-hmm. put you there. But really, it's not about you. So you got to stay humble and you got to remember that one day that might not be your position. And That's so right. um, that I thought that was a really good perspective. So of all those five, what stands out to you, Brian? Oh, I mean,
0: they're all great. First of all, number five, there you brought me Starbucks yesterday. I thought it was about me, but apparently, <laughs> That not. was
3: only because you're my co-host. I would bring <laughs> I would bring any co-host Starbucks. There you Ryan. go. <laughs> there you go.
0: Uh, but uh, you know, number five also seems extremely biblical to me, right? Philippians chapter two, there staying humble, and Jesus not taking his position and uh, of of authority. You know, but humbling himself, or the last shall be first. Like these feel biblical the number one is i think so important to go after the things you want like i just don't i I, that takes when i hear that i get inspired and i get scared
3: you get a little bit intimidated
0: right we all have met it's one thing just to be like go for what you want but then you start thinking about the repercussions in your life that could come as i go for the things i want i got family and kids and this, and bills to pay And so sometimes you're like, ah, which is what is prudence and what is fear? Like it's, it's just a really good, but these are, these are good because a lot of us just go through life. We coast through life. And he's like, what's going to give you that spark? And what's going to give you that future you're looking for? I I found that I'm glad that you put this up here.
3: Yeah, I, I, I thought it was really, I thought it was really interesting and kind of a different perspective on some of the things you already know. And I appreciated the taking accountability seriously. I think in my own life, like I want the credit for the good things, but it is sort of humbling to like your tail between your legs going, ah, uh, here's the thing I really messed up on. But you know we've seen leaders especially in the church recently who have not done this well and so to be people of integrity who can own both like the accomplishments that god has allowed us to achieve but then also our mistakes and our sinfulness and where we have just really frankly screwed up that i think that will um make us people of integrity and that's what the world longs for right now
0: well put coming up next what's it like living the almost certain knowledge about your future What would that be like? We're going to discuss that with an interesting story next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
2: This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
3: Coming up this hour, we're asking, would you want to know the good and bad in your future? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. Okay, Brian, this is a fascinating story that I am uh, excited for us to talk about. There's a woman named Catherine Moser, and in 2005, so you do the math, that's what, 16 years ago?
0: Yep, good did math. Did I do that right? Math. Yay! You did. You got thank
3: it. Thank you. Thank you. Um. She decided to undergo genetic testing because um, there's a disease that runs in her family called Huntington's disease, which is really debilitating and also can be fatal. And so she decided to learn in her 20s um, whether or not she ha- was at risk of getting it, found out she Amazing. was. And now she's just is about to um, turn 40 or she may have just turned 40. And so the reporter who first did this story in the New York Times went back uh, to connect with her to see how she's processing that almost 20 years later. It's a fascinating story. We actually have some audio of that first interview that I wanted us to hear, and then you and I are going to talk about what we think about this. So let's go ahead and listen. My grandfather had Huntington's disease. He lived in Cardinal Cook, from 1992 to 2002. I remember him before, um, before he moved into Colonel Cook, and I remember coming back to visit, and I actually hated coming here. The test came back positive, which meant that she had inherited the defective gene that had killed her grandfather. The news forced upon Ms. Moser a new way of looking at her life. I think I've tried to make myself even more aware of what it is and what I can do to help Okay, so that's Catherine um, at the early stages, right? She's mm-hmm. just found out uh, that she has this disease, or at least has the potential, the markers for this disease. And um, talking about how knowing that she has the gene has now made her more aware about the disease, and she wants to learn how she can help. Now, interestingly, uh, the New York Times followed up with her, like I said, on her 40th birthday, and she's really talked about how living with this Knowledge has changed a lot for her. And interestingly, one of the things she says is she likes to kind of counsel other people who are walking through this decision should I or shouldn't I um, do the genetic testing? And what she says is, I don't advise them not to get tested, but I do advise them to, you know, really think about it because mm-hmm. once you find out, you can't not find out. Yeah. Um, and it seems like it's been a a very difficult thing for her to actually live with this information. So I I Brian, what would you do in this scenario?
0: It's this is such a when you sent me this article, I've really gone back and forth on this one. Like this is really hard. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, to know that this is coming, I think would cause you to live with a sense of urgency of like, I want to accomplish the, you know, it it talks about the stuff she has done. She's
3: done a lot, right? Living in the moment.
0: Right. Exactly. I think a lot of us, we just assume that we're going to make it to 80, 85, 90 years old. And so I have all this time. And then all of a sudden, Oh no, I don't, you know, and then you have regret. So there's that aspect of it. Like on that sense, I think that I would want to know because it would it would light a fire in me to just yeah. live every day like yeah. really hard and and just keep going. On the other hand, uh, that could be really tiring way to live. And I think also that that knowing would place this black cloud above you of going like, yeah. when is this going to kick in? When is the other shoe going to drop? Because it's not like she knows on March fifteenth of your exactly 45th year, yeah. It could come any time that most doctors have told her that it's going to be right around when you're 50. Like that's kind of the marker and that's yeah. kind of common. And so uh, it, there's that ticking clock that on the one hand would make you live with urgency, but on the other hand, I would think is terrifying
3: uh, uh, yeah.
0: of just knowing that this is coming. And so as I've weighed those two, I, I'm really struggling. I think it's like you've given me the hard would you rather question. Yeah, last, that's a, uh, this is a real
3: life. Would you rather one? Yep.
0: I think, but I, but I'm not gonna just say that this is definitive. But I think when I weigh them, I'd want to know.
3: Interesting. But I'm okay. Not
0: sure about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How yeah. about you?
3: You're like at a seventy percent. You'd want exactly. to know. Maybe. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, How about you? I, I think uh, this is. It is hard because it, I was thinking about this even with my kids. I would want to know my kids' genetic testing. And if mm. they are going to get sick in the future, I would want to right now do whatever I could to help keep them healthy. But for my own self, I don't think I would want to know, which is a little unfair. But I I think my fear would be every headache like I have today, uh, every yeah. ache and pain, every whatever, every moment when you kind of forgot Something like where your keys are, I would be like, this is it. This is it. This is the onset of this disease. And I, mm. I think that's just my personality that I would not be able to live in the moment because I would be so concerned about the shoe dropping, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. I can understand a decision to go ahead and get the genetic testing because, in one sense, it may give you a sense of control like, okay, now I know. I'm prepared for it. I'm going to process it. I'm going to feel sad, but I'm going to move forward. I mean, I know there's a lot of women who get tested for like the BRCA genes to see if they might have breast cancer in the future. Hmm. And so that gives you a sense of control. And then you're able to do what you can with that knowledge. But in general, I don't think it would be a good way of life for me. Like it would not feel life-giving. It would feel way too scary. But it's certainly complicated, right?
0: Yeah, especially this one, because this feels a little bit... Uh, like a special circumstance in the sense of this is genetic in her family. Yeah. Uh, this, I, I guess I would want to know what do you think, med, you know, medical research is only moving forward at a lightning speed right, right now. And there could right. very well come a day. Where you could get all sorts of tests that says, hey, Aubrey, uh, when you're later in your life, you're likely to get X or Y. Right. I don't think I'd want to know that. Like, I think in this specific thing where Mm -hmm. it's already hanging over your head a little bit, I might Mm want to know. But I don't think I'd want to know, like, if there's – I'm making this up. But if there's testing that comes down the pike later that's like, hey, you're – likely to get cancer in your, you know, in your 60s. I like, yeah. I don't want to know that. You right, know what I mean? Right, like, right. Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm speaking out of two sides of my mouth. Maybe they're the same thing. But something about hers feels different.
3: I can um, see what you're saying. Like, this is a special thing that runs in her family. It's not sort of a, a larger like a cancer. Right. Like, this is very specific to her family line. And, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I, I would think, too, This kind of information would be helpful, let's say, if you want to have a baby. Like, you might want to think through, can I, can't I, should I, shouldn't I? Like, those kinds of things would be helpful. Interesting in the story, um, Catherine talks about how she sought to use her genetic knowledge to have a biological child without passing on the gene. And she underwent two rounds of in vitro fertilization to create embryos. Um, without the gene and unfortunately wow. uh, all of the viable embryos when screen turned out to have the disease causing gene and so she actually set aside her hopes of becoming a parent so that's wow. a little sad right like that you would choose n- not to have this uh, realize this dream because of this information and so you kind of have to wonder like would she if, would she have gone ahead and had kids if she didn't know that? You know, that's a little bit sad. There's certainly some loss yeah. in it, right? Yeah. And
0: I think the main point for me out of this is like, I'm not sure we're meant to know the future. Mm. <laughs> you know, there I think it really complicates things like we can still trust God to be sovereign, God to be good. And uh, but it'd be really hard to turn it down. You know, it'd be really yeah. hard. To be like, nope, yeah. I don't want to know because she- if she turned it down, she's still probably going to live with this going, is it coming? Is it coming? Like, I, mean, that's I, I would true. think it's hard, but, yep, but I think generally speaking, especially as, as science moves forward, I'm not sure it's healthy for us to know our futures very much. And. Um, you know, in some level, there's a faith in God's sovereignty to say, okay, like mm. i like, I'm, I'm going to put my trust in him. So yeah, what a hard, it's a weird story. That's a yeah, hard story.
3: Hard story. Well, we'd love to hear what you think. You can let us know on social media. Would you get the genetic testing or maybe the better question is, would you want to know your future, the good and the bad or not?
0: Coming up next, Pastor
3: Alistair Begg, the author of
0: Brave by Faith, living with God-sized confidence in a post-Christian world. Pastor Begg is going to join us here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And uh, we are thrilled to be joined by the senior pastor of Parkside Church out near Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, His name is Alistair Begg. Uh, That name might sound familiar to those of you who listen to AM 1160 on a regular basis. Alistair hosts Truth For Life every weekday at 7.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. right here on AM 1160. Uh, And he's also the author of a new book called Brave By Faith, God-Sized Confidence in a Post-Christian World. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on
1: the show. It's a privilege to join you too. So uh, thank you very much.
0: It's absolutely my pleasure. I'd love to talk to you about your book here, Brave by Faith. Why don't you give us an overview? Why Not only why did you write the book, but what is Brave by Faith about?
1: Well, it's actually the story of uh, uh, Daniel and his friends who are taken away from the world that was familiar to them and taken into an alien territory where the convictions were either going to be Present in their lives, or they were going to be squeezed out of them. And of course, what happens is that uh, the crises that they face uh, reveal that they are men of conviction. And the the hero in the story is, of course, God Himself. It's not that uh, Daniel was particularly brave, uh, but that he was brave by faith. In other words, uh, the challenge for us or the encouragement for us is not to become like Daniel but to learn to trust in Daniel's God. And uh, so that's really the theme that runs throughout.
0: Oh, abs- that's outstanding. Now, uh, we all know in the, ba- in, the, in the Daniel story, we know Babylon. And, and I would ask this question, what does, our, what does our modern world have in common with Babylon?
1: Well, it's a world that is uh, uh, opposed to God uh, and is stuck on itself and is antagonistic towards uh, uh, the king. Uh, Psalm 2, why do the nations wage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? Why do they uh, respond and uh, say, let us break their bonds and uh, establish our own agenda? Uh, that's, that's the thing. It's the king, two kingdoms. It's Augustine, you know, the kingdoms of our world and the kingdom of our Christ, the two cities. Uh, Babel, uh, is man's endeavor to uh, uh, reach up to heaven and to do without God. And so Babylon is epitomized by that, and our world is largely epitomized by that, too. That's why Jesus said, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you've got to be in it, but you mustn't be of it. That's right.
0: That's right. I, I love the title of the book, Brave by Faith, because, you know, typically we, we hear live by faith or walk by faith. Could you, you already did it a little bit, but can you talk more about that title, Brave by Faith, why you called it that, and what does faith have to do with bravery?
1: Well, if we were to go into the New Testament and think about Paul encouraging Timothy as a younger man in pastoral ministry, he says to him, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In other words, he's not asking him to look inside of himself and try and be a courageous person, but he's saying to him, uh, find your strength and your confidence in God and then work out your own salvation, as it were, from there. And so if you think about the climate in which we find ourselves today, where uh, certain fundamental uh, convictions that frame biblical Christianity are under radical attack. Uh, in in multiple spheres of life then uh, it's going to take a measure of bravery for people to actually be prepared to stand against the tide and for for many of us it's much easier just to go with the flow but any dead fish can flow downstream you know it only takes a, it takes a live stream <laughs> uh, fish to be able to fl- uh, uh, swim against the current
0: mm. Uh, you say this in the book. I just love this phrase. You say, what the world most needs from the church is our gospel, not our approval. And so I guess I would ask it this way. Uh, what makes approval different from the elements of the gospel, like being loving? A lot of times people are like, well, we're just supposed to be loving and non-judgmental, or whatever. Help us understand again when you say the, the church, that the world needs the church's gospel, not our approval.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, uh, it's a, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Because um, we all like to be um, included in the group. We don't want to be the standout. Uh, it's always difficult when you're at school and you experience that or uh, in, in a lab setting as a, as a Christian and, uh, and you realize it's much easier just to go along with the group and uh, to uh, acknowledge their jokes or to uh, be prepared to adapt to uh, their convictions, Uh, but that is no help to them because what they need is the gospel. And the gospel is the story of what God has done for us in Jesus to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, from death and from hell. And so uh, the the gospel is not about what we can do in order to uh, uh, make ourselves acceptable to God, but it is the good news of what God has done in Jesus. Now, that of course is uh, immediately anathema to people who have been brought up believing that uh, they can find in themselves the answer to all of their questions and uh, they can uh, improve themselves and uh, uh, be better uh, so, so, so citizens and uh, members of, uh, of the group. Uh, but it fails to acknowledge the fact they were desperately flawed and the Bible inevitably confronts us with that and people don't like to hear that they don't like to hear it uh more today than they did uh in daniel's day absolutely absolutely
2: Absolutely.
0: well you know something that always sticks out when i read daniel or read that story is just how much the other leaders were against him like they to the point that they wanted to have him killed why do you think in the book of daniel so many of the other leaders you know they didn't just disregard him they hated him to such a level that they wanted to have him killed why do you think that was the case
1: well it wasn't because he was doing bad things it was because he was doing good things it wasn't because his character was malignant it was because his character was crystal clear in other words they were jealous of him they despised uh, the very goodness that they found in him because the quality of his life it, it, it just just revealed uh, the emptiness of their own. Uh, for example, when they are completely unable to employ their spells and their stratagems to interpret the, the dreams of the king, uh, this fellow uh, from who knows where steps forward and instead of saying, don't worry, I've got it covered, he says, uh, well, I, I, I'm not sure that I can do this, but I do know that God can do this. And so he introduces God into the equation and, of course, that's exactly what follows. And, again, you see, we have to understand the nature of the world in which we live in. That People don't live in a, in a neutral zone trying to decide whether they want to be uh, in the kingdom of God or not in the kingdom of God. We are, by nature, members of the kingdom that is opposed to God. And that's why the story of the gospel is that he comes uh, to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of light. And so when, when the light shines, you know, if you're with somebody who doesn't cuss all the time, then it's amazing how it really annoys people who cuss all the time. Or if you're with somebody who doesn't tell dirty jokes all the time, they're, they're like, man, I hate you. Well, why? Why, why do you hate me? Well, because our, our lives in some measure expose uh, the nature of uh, uh, the, the circumstances that are there to be, to be seen. And so it's no surprise that they they despise him for that.
0: Yeah, again, we're being joined by Alistair Begg. He is senior pastor of Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio. He's also the author of a new book called Brave by Faith, God-Sized Confidence in a Post-Christian World. You can hear Alistair on Truth for Life, which airs weekdays here on AM 1160 at 730 AM and 1.30 p.m. Alistair, we're thrilled that you've stayed with us. Uh, before we jump back into your book, Brave by Faith, I did want to just ask you, kind of pastor to pastor, uh, what's the pandemic year been like for you, and how have you been encouraging your congregation during this crazy pandemic time?
1: Uh, well, I think it's been um, a whole host of things. It's shown uh, all kinds of uh, elements of our uh, of our lives and of the nature of what it means to uh, live together as uh, as a, a family of faith, especially when, for example, in the early months, uh, I just uh, stood and spoke to an empty auditorium and our material um, went out online. And then as we began to re-emerge and come together, uh, the sense that some people had that uh, viewing things uh, in one way was uh, an expression of weakness, or others had different views. It's, it's been a very testing time. And yeah I've, I've tried to handle it is by just remaining consistent, consistent in doing what I do. It's a bit like, uh, you know, uh, mom goes in the kitchen and she makes the, she makes the family meals. And uh, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so good. There's all kinds of things going on in people's lives but you can pretty well guarantee that she'll be there and the meal will be on the table. I kind of look at it in that way. You know, I go in the kitchen during the week. I get the material together. It's not my material. I'm just a servant of it. And I've been both amazed and encouraged in the way in which the timeliness of the Word of God has helped to stabilize uh, our church family and uh, Mm. remind us of what a wonder it is that, even though our circumstances may be daunting and unusual, that we're discovering again that the promises of God may be trusted and that his word is exactly what it says, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path.
0: Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, so again, we're talking to Alistair about his new book called Brave by Faith. If you missed the first segment, go get the podcast and you can hear kind of the background. And this book is, uh, is the story of Daniel, uh, which is just an amazing Old Testament story. And Alistair, at the, at the heart or part of the story of Daniel has a lot to do with idols and idol worship. And I wonder, uh, what are the idols that you think we're being asked to worship today? And what are the consequences in our lives when we when we do worship those idols? And also, what are the consequences when we don't worship the idols of our culture?
1: Well, you know, the fundamental problem for us uh, as human beings is idolatry. I mean, if you think about it, the 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 beginning of the Ten Commandments addresses this you shall have no other gods before me. That the propensity of our hearts is to uh, choose substitute gods, uh, especially if we can have gods that will do our bidding uh, rather than our uh, bowing down before the true and living God. And so, uh, from the very uh, beginning of time and from the fall of man, uh, we find that uh, uh, the people. Uh, who are uh, trying to make their way in the journey of life are uh, tempted to substitute uh, all that is true of god for things that are uh, lesser gods now what are they today well there's there's so many of them but one of them is just the worship of ourselves i mean one of the one of the uh, clearest expressions of idolatry is just the fact that uh, we're stuck on ourselves we place ourselves where God deserves to be, uh, uh, on a throne. Uh, this is my life. This is my agenda. No one shall tell me what to do. And uh, that, that now runs to the very essence of uh, our sexuality. Uh, the fact that I am uh, uh, physically uh, put together by the plan and purpose of God in such a way doesn't uh, call in question my ability to change that dramatically which is an expression of the, uh, the idolatry of self. Uh, we can add to that uh, money, we can add to it sex, we can add to it all kinds of things. But uh, the idea that somehow or another idolatry has to do with uh, shrines and idols um, mm-hmm. fails to acknowledge that the real idolatry is the idolatry of the human heart.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the things I appreciate about your book, again, we're talking about the new book, Brave by Faith, is your encouragement to Christ followers to kind of draw lines that they won't cross, right? Like Daniel did in refusing to violate God's law around the food. Uh, how do we know which lines to draw and maybe how do we discern that, uh, where where we are to like hold fast and where maybe we can fudge things a little bit? How do you help people understand about where to draw
2: those lines?
1: Well, you know, that. The the Bible helps us with that, you know, for example, again, we were talking about Titus there, you know, that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and to all kinds of passions. Um, So the the, the Bible is is principally very, very clear uh, that we are to draw lines in the matter of, let's take uh, uh, the question of human sexuality. The lines are are not uh, uh, somehow or another uh, to be self determined. Uh, that uh, God has established, man and woman has created family life, has determined what marriage is and therefore what marriage is not. And so uh, there are there are clearly uh, delineated lines. Now, even within that framework, though, each of us has to determine you know, what that actually means in our everyday existence. And so, for example, in the great pressure at the moment in the world of education, which has uh, basically um, capitulated on the idea of any kind of objective truth, which has uh, become invaded by a sort of relativism that extends even to the question of who and what we are, uh, school teachers who work in that system or university professors, are going to have to decide uh, whether they're prepared to take a stand. Now, uh, so uh, you're a Christian and you are teaching in a Christian school and you're a chaplain and the LGBTQT people come in and say, we're going to have to help you people understand what it means to be, uh, you know, kind, what it means to be fair. And when you hear what that actually means, it, it means something very, very different from that. Now, what are you going to do? You can either roll over or you can take a stand. And if you take a stand, you may lose your job. And part of the challenge is uh, some of us are gonna have to be prepared to lose our jobs. And there might be pastors who are gonna lose their jobs uh, because of our preparedness to say what the Bible says. If hate speech were to include the straightforward teaching of the Bible, then uh, each one of us would pretty quickly find ourselves either having to change our sermon material or being prepared to face the impact of the, the state and the law coming, coming against us. Uh, we don't look to that. We hope that that will not be the case. But it would be naive to think that if things continue on the trajectory in which they're on now, that some of us will not actually have to face that eventuality.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey,
0: Alistair, before we let you go, uh, we, I love to ask pastors this question. Pandemic, we live in a, in a, in a politically divided time. Uh, it's a difficult time and there's a lot of people out there who just don't have hope right now. They're struggling to have any hope in their lives because of what's happened personally or what they see going around them. Could you take a minute or two and just kind of speak a word of hope to people out there who may be struggling right now?
1: Well, sure. I mean, part of the challenge is distinguishing between hope in the idea of, well, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope the stock market doesn't go down, and what the Bible talks about in relationship to hope, which is uh, the certainty of that which has not yet been experienced, so that it's not it's not in question that when Peter says we have been born again to a living hope. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not, it's not as if we don't have hope. It's about living in the assurance of that hope. It's actually, I mean, in many ways, the story of Daniel is, uh, uh, God is good and he can be trusted. And the part of the, part of the challenge for us is facing the question, do I really believe that God is good? And if he is good and he will give me that which is good, and he'll decide what is good, then maybe I can take my hands off a steering wheel for a little while and trust him to get me safely to my destination. Now, that's where the community of faith comes in, the encouragement of friends, the reading of the Bible, the trusting the promises of God. And so what is so easily um, uh, before us is the temptation to quit praying until we feel like praying or quit reading our Bibles until we feel like we should, or quit telling others about Jesus until, you know, things come around, uh, which, of course, is the very reverse of what we need to be doing. And we don't do it because we're so supremely confident. We're actually quite timid. But God helping us, we can be brave by faith. And that bravery can extend, continuing to convince ourselves of what is true concerning God. If he gave up his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, neither nakedness or peril or or sword, whatever it might be. No, because in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not we may be more than conquerors, but we are more than conquerors. And so sometimes what we have to do is quit taking our own spiritual pulse to see if we're still alive and get our shoes on and get out and uh, get into the get into the world and say, God, I'm a timid person, but you can help me to be brave by faith.
0: Oh, such a good word. Thank you so much for that. Again, that's Alistair Begg, Senior Pastor of Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio, author of multiple books. Uh, you can hear Alistair every weekday, 7.30 a.m. and one thirty p.m., on Truth For Life right here on AM 1160. You can learn more about Truth For Life at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. Alistair, this has been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thank you very much. It's my privilege.
0: Absolutely, our pleasure. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The
2: Common Good on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life.
3: everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. Okay, Brian, you uh, shared an article with me called A Letter to the Christian Who Hasn't Been to Church in a While. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, I think it gets back to, especially coming out of COVID, but then you listen to podcasts like uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that we talked about mm-hmm. with Mike Cosper. And there's a lot of people who are... Um, uh, they are looking at the church very skeptically. They're disillusioned by the church. The article here is written by somebody who literally came to faith at Mars Hill. Oh, and wow. It goes on to talk about some of the disillusionment that happened. Uh, and so there's all sorts of reasons that people out there right now are saying, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to be part of his church, or I haven't mm. gone back to church, or I don't like his church. It could be everything from, you know, simple things like, I don't know. I don't like church people. Or she goes on to say here that, uh, the, you know, the pastor isn't available. I've too, I'm too busy. Mm. Uh, you know, it's awkward at times, or it could be other real serious stuff like abuse that we see going on in the church or manipulation or whatever else. There's a whole spectrum as to why people don't go to back to church. Uh, but the author of this article is wanting to say, yeah, you know what? Uh, If you claim to know and love God, yet do not have a desire to be part of his church, she says, I lovingly implore you to evaluate your relationship with him. Get in his word and read what he has to say about his calling for us. There are 100 or more things that we could do that would hinder us from sharing life with God's people. Uh, And she goes on to challenge people. You need the church. All right. Wow. You, are, you need the church. Not all churches are healthy. And she is acknowledging that and saying, be part of a healthy church, but that it's not OK for us to go. I love Jesus, but I hate his bride. I love mm. Jesus and I don't want to be part of a church. And I think it's an important way to end this afternoon's show because. Um, we hear that a lot from people right yeah. coming out of the pandemic right now is I've learned that I don't need to be part of a church. People mm-hmm. are saying uh, I, it's just me and Jesus and, and, and what the author here of this article and what I think I would say and I believe you would agree with is no, you can't you, you can't separate the two right that that Jesus talks often about his church. And again, this doesn't mean that all churches are healthy. It right. doesn't mean you never move up yet. Yeah, maybe the answer coming out of the pandemic is not "I'm not going to go to church," but it's instead "I'm going to go search out a healthy church right. where I can grow and be in community." Uh, but Aubrey, I think you'd agree this idea that I can love Jesus but but uh, ignore or even hate his church just isn't a biblical concept.
3: It's not a biblical concept, and I do feel like that's something I've I've heard people say for years. Um, and and the reason that it's not biblical is exactly what you said, Brian. Like God has the Christianity is a movement of people. Like it's, we worship Jesus as a body of believers and God has sent his church on mission. And I mean, how many like uh, verses about one another are there in the Mm -hmm. new Testament, encourage one another, uh, break bread together. Like, you know, just again and again and again, we're called to be people together uh, doing the Christian life together. And when it becomes individualistic like that, we're dividing, um, we're dividing our worship from really its soul and, and what God intended Christianity to be, which is, again, a body of believers together. And so I, I, we have to be careful about that kind of dichotomy. Yes. And one of the things this article says is, the enemy is strategic. He has come to steal kill and destroy your faith, Mm. relationship with God, and relationship with other believers. And so I, you know, I know like, especially those of us who have been in church for a long time, it is easy to be cynical. It is easy to get distracted. It's easy to get bitter about other Christians. But I think that's also why it's so important to be in community so that um, we learn what it is to love each other in a way that looks like Jesus and honors Jesus. And again, what does scripture say? That the world will know us by our love and that's our love for each other. Mm, And so we have to be in Christian community.
0: Yeah, she goes on to say the church isn't primarily a building or a set of programs or events. I think that's a very important line. Yeah, there. That's good. It's a family, a mm-hmm. broken family. Yes, but a family all the more seeking God to love more, serve more and share light in a super, super dark world. I like double use of super, super, super dark world. Uh, talks about Jesus, be, you know, talk about the church, the apostles being, uh, you know, leading churches, and then the verse in Hebrews 10 that you already spoke of, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's this idea that we need one another. Yeah. A- and we live in a hyper individualistic culture that says, oh, just me and Jesus or rugged individualism. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, no, we actually need each other. And mm. ch- uh, here, I'm a pastor. Let me acknowledge a few things. Churches can be really hard. Yeah. Churches can be really weird. Yeah. <laughs> they can be awkward yeah. because they're made up of people. Right. But the the ultimate idea is that it's not about a program and maybe it's me being part of a community um T- both taking and giving, and and moving towards Jesus with this kind of ragtag group of people. And again, if going into the pandemic, you were part of a church that was just completely unhealthy, didn't preach the Bible, was all this stuff, then yes, maybe it's time to go yeah. search out a healthy church. The answer isn't. Well, I guess what we're trying to say is the answer isn't stop going to church altogether.
3: Yeah, yeah. But it went,
0: instead, oh, go, ahead. go find a church. Uh, make it a passion and a, and a priority of yours to find a Bible believing, Bible teaching kind of family that you can invest in and be a part of.
3: Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, another word too is like you said, find a healthy church and stay there for a while. You yes. Know? Because it is easy in our consumeristic culture to be like, Oh, I don't like the music. Oh, that sermon didn't speak to me today. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Commit to staying there for a while. And by a while, I mean years. Mm-hmm. And um, because it's so easy, this article even says this, it's so easy to sit like behind the scenes criticizing It's harder to actually live out an active faith, getting involved with people, making real changes, loving on real people, living life alongside real people and their real pain. That's the harder choice. But at the end Mm. of the day, that's the sanctifying choice that will change you, will actually end up changing the world in the end. So find a church, stick to it for a while and see what God can do. And I'm with you. I'm also a pastor. And I know church is weird. Church can be messy. Churches, pastors aren't perfect. We know this. Um, but there is something really beautiful about being in the family of believers growing in Christ together that we all need as Christians. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And, and you know what? It, part of the struggle right now uh, is just the... Um, the busyness of life. And I yeah. totally get that. Like, I feel that in my family. Now, Sunday morning isn't sacred anymore for people, for culturally speaking. And so, there's a lot of stuff warring at it. I totally get it. I tell you how often I go to my son's baseball games on the weekends. All that stuff. The <laughs> right. This, right. Is, this is not us pointing the finger. But the question is just are we going to prioritize church coming out of this pandemic and not even, even always just the Sunday morning service, but being part of a community in which I'm being spurred on. Others are spurring me on so that we can know Jesus more deeply and, and make him known to the world. Like that's what it means to be the church. Messy, awkward, crazy, mm-hmm. fun at times. Yeah. But all of us need to be a part of.
3: It. Yep. Such a good word, Brian. So go to church this weekend. That's what we're saying. Well, thank you so much for joining us. For Brian From I'm Aubrey Sampson. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.